Christmas morning, I snuck out early to grab a few moments of solitude before the chaos of the day ensued. I was at my in-laws near Malibu and ventured off into a place I'd never been before. One sharp left turn off the main road and I found myself at the base of what looked like a promising climb. Somewhat uncharacteristic, I proceeded without caution or fear and started to jog. I immediately noticed there wasn't a single footprint in sight. Cobwebs spun the night before, threads delicately spread across the trail, caught the morning dew and danced unscathed in the morning dawn. I continued through the uncharted forest, gaining confidence in my stride, endorphins engulfing my mind. After an invigorating steady run, I stopped to take a breath, pause, look around. I gasped. It was breathtaking. I had never been here before, not in reality, but certainly not in my mind. I was above the fog. Everything was clear. Everything was beautiful. Everything was exactly how it was supposed to be. As I enter my third year of sobriety, I rise above the fog and take my first step. I am at the precipice of finally understanding who I am for the first time ever. No more masks, just me, bold and beautiful, brain on fire. Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Certified Life Coach. My brain is on fire. I live with bipolar one, found sobriety only a few years ago, and since then have simply been trying to figure out this whole thing called life. Join me for storytelling and candid conversations in a safe space while together we find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the concept of paying it forward? That's what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message out to all listeners with the teachings and lessons of the Together Sober podcast. Let's pay it forward. Hit subscribe. Welcome back to another episode and another season of the Together Sober Podcast. Season two, Brain on Fire. A couple months ago, my psychiatrist, Dr. Craig Heacock, he's based in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, we teamed up to create an episode for his podcast, uh, Back to the Abyss. It is such a good podcast. Um, it's ranked uh, number one in psychedelic podcasts, and he covers so many incredible topics, and he's absolutely brilliant and a genius. Um, but this this teamwork here was because he really has been wanted for a while to share an accurate depiction of what it actually feels like to be manic in bipolar mania. And um, I'm bipolar, that's no surprise. And so we teamed up to kind of really paint a picture, bring to life, help people that maybe don't understand whether it's providers, patients, family members, like what does it actually look like, feel like, whether that's medicated, unmedicated, you know, early stages, late stages, whatever it is, like what does that all look and feel like? And so that episode has already aired, it aired December of 2023. And I, I really urge you to listen to it if that's something that is of interest to you or you want to learn about for a family member or a loved one. I'll put it in the notes. But I kind of digress. So in preparation for that conversation with Dr. H, you know, there's, when we look at our stories, like all of our stories are decades long, right? And so it's hard to kind of figure out, like, how do I, how do I tease out what's important? How do I whittle it down? And so he had me work on an exercise. And he said, you know, out of your 40 plus years of, of life here on this earth, whittle it down to 10 key moments and periods of your life that you feel really has defined your bipolar. 
And that exercise is, is not entirely in that episode. That episode is much more conversational, but the reason that I'm bringing it to season one of Brain on episode one, excuse me, of Brain on Fire today is because the purpose of season two of Brain on Fire of the Together Sober podcast is to really take into account our full life experiences and see how they truly implicate our decisions and life moving forward into the unknown. We can all universally say that, right? And so we have an incredible lineup so far this season, have already recorded a few interviews and, and talked to a few amazing, amazing people with amazing stories. And I, I cannot wait to share them with you. We're touching on all topics this season. Um, addiction is one of those topics, but we're going to be getting all over the place this season. And, you know, you just heard my poem that I shared with you that at the first, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm 41 years old. Um, I'm really feeling like I'm at the precipice of, of clarity um, and understanding who I actually am and still very much working on it. And I wouldn't be at that point if I hadn't lived life, right? And if I didn't have these top 10 key moments or experiences of my life, um, these top 10 moments have led me exactly where I need to be. So it's been a while <laughs> since I've shared, you know, my my full story with you, bits and pieces here and there. Um, and a lot of my story that I've shared with you has been really from the addiction lens, not the bipolar lens, um, which I focused on a lot in season one. So today I would like to share a new um, perspective of my story and really my journey of bipolar with you. And I'll share them in my top 10 key moments. When I was 15, uh, what really fueled this uh, was identity and religion. I grew up in a religious household, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and always resisted it. But by the time I got to age 14, 15, there was a lot of resistance in my household to the religion, to my parents, a lot of kind of rebellious activity. And I really was struggling with identity. And at age 15, sophomore in high school, fell into a depression that I've only experienced once since. And I don't, it's so hard with mental health because everything's kind of a blur when you recount it. But it, I remember it feeling like it was almost overnight that I went from feeling relatively normal to an overwhelm and darkness that engulfed me. Um, I couldn't get out of bed crying endlessly hour after hour after hour. These led to activities, self-harm. I was a cutter, I would cut my legs, I would cut my arms. Um, a lot of grandiose thinking, a lot of suicidal ideation, a lot of really big thoughts and journaling. Uh, this stemmed into anorexia. It just consumed me, every, every, every part of me. And to the point where, you know, as a 15-year-old, when you're trying to figure out your identity anyway, like I allowed it and maybe almost intentionally, you know, forced it on myself as my identity. Um, I remember kind of glorifying it in ways, um, seeking attention from it, taking pride in it. I would, I found you know, a girlfriend that was also extremely depressed and self-harm and, and we were kind of our, our self-harm buddies. And I remember, you know, I would latch on to friendships that gave me the attention that I wanted. Um, and it, it was really, really all encompassing. It got worse uh, because my parents made the choice to send me to Utah for a summer um, in an attempt to help me, they had discovered my self-harm activities and um, lost trust in my therapist at the time and sent me to Utah. Unfortunately, in Utah, I was the victim of some other trauma. And uh, that really just contributed to my depression, but also contributed towards 
my anger and resentment towards my family and my religion. And so that for me is my number one event. Um, it's interesting, you know, in bipolar, everybody's different, but for me, that was nothing to do with mania, right? That was everything to do with depression. That was kind of my, my first peak in this window of extreme emotion. Fast forward to age 18, number two, where freedom and heartbreak fueled my next key event. And age 18 is when I went to college. So I graduated from a high school in Providence, Rhode Island, Moses Brown, and I had been accepted to Skidmore College in upstate New York, Saratoga Springs. I had been accepted there to the one college I applied to because my high school sweetheart and I were going to go there together and live happily ever after. And about a month or so before starting college, he broke up with me, um, was dating another girl and completely smashed my heart into a million pieces. Um, devastated. Like, I, I think I'm still devastated. Um, decades later from that heartbreak, it really, really had a huge impact on me. And so that's how I went to college with this extreme heartbreak, as well as this newfound sense of freedom from my parents, from my religion, from my hometown, um, and some independence there too, right? And this is where, again, there was no awareness at the time of this, but looking back to this year of my life, this was my first period of mania. Um, so I, I didn't know it at the time, but like, I remember when I got to college, it was almost as though I, I put on like this superwoman cape and I was like from day one landing on that campus, ready to take over the world. Um, and, you know, my response was to really embrace that freedom and go out and conquer the world. Nothing could stop me. Nothing was too much. Nothing was too far. Nothing was too extreme. I had zero limits when it comes to drugs, sex, sleep, spontaneous travel. Like <laughs> I, I adopted all of it. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, like I remember Dr. H asked me, like, did anybody was anybody worried about you? Did anybody like think anything was wrong? And it like, the answer is no, because I was choosing to surround myself with people that were behaving in very similar ways. And maybe I was more extreme, but it didn't really matter because I was choosing to surround myself by those people. Um, the other thing I think about mania that's really important to note is that we have the ability to be high performers at the same time. Um, so I was an A-plus student. I graduated cum laude, graduate with honors. I had Periclean Honor Society with theater. Um, I, was, I was high achieving in so many areas. And the other areas that I wasn't, I would hide or keep under wraps. And so, and part of that A-plus, you know, transcript came from staying up all night and you know using drugs to stay up all night or just my mania keeping me up all night um but arguably from like a professor perspective I'm killing it like I'm doing awesome you know um bipolar untreated and unmedicated is also like progressive and so for me at 18 like I was just in the beginning stages here so there was nothing really I definitely could have killed myself multiple times but there was nothing, and we'll get to those episodes a little bit later, where I was truly putting myself in extreme harm's way, arguably. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about that out loud and wondering if that's true. Um, and I would say where this differs here is like, I think we all have an element of adolescent invincibility, especially in these college years. And this is kind of like that on steroids, like just what I what I would do. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, things got a, a bit extreme. Um, during this time, I, it was almost like I was just testing the limits. I don't really know what I was looking for. Um, but I did get myself into some 
pretty extreme situations, um, dating men, you know, 20, 30 years, my age, drug dealers, you know, finding myself in crack houses, just some, some pretty extreme situations, but all the while still having this false sense of reality that everything's fine. And this is the way it's supposed to be. Um, because I'm 18 or 19 and have my freedom and that's what I'm supposed to do. Arguably that mania was maybe up to a year long. And then all my college years was, I would say a roller coaster up and down, up and down, up and down. Age 22 is my third key moment. And this is independence and autonomy. And for me, this is when I had graduated from Skidmore College. I was now living back in Rhode Island, living in Providence in my own first apartment by myself. And my behaviors took on more of a narcissistic quality is why I think this is kind of a key moment for me. Um, I was still kind of living this life of late nights and no sleep and, you know, dating married men, working 80 hours a week, uh, taking pride in working 80 hours a week, very social, going out every night till 3 a.m., um, really just this like fast, 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 fast paced, um, no slowing down. Even if I tried every idea I had was just absolutely brilliant. Um, I remember one night I had a moment, I, I don't know what it was. It was three o'clock in the morning and I ordered a dog online. That's how I got my first dog, Ella. Um, so we're starting to see kind of decisions and behaviors on a little bit more of a magnified scale, but the reason I also say narcissistic is because I was essentially bartending. That was my career um, and working for this Greek family. And But somehow in my eyes, it was like I was the expert in all things hospitality and I had achieved greatness because I was, you know, top of my industry and making so much money, even though I wasn't. Um, and like, it was like, I just, I remember like my parents, you know, would ask me questions about restaurant industry or things like that. And I just had this, like, you know, I just puff out my chest and, and just really take on this, like really unattractive, um, arrogance, um, and narcissism. I remember during this stage, just feeling gorgeous, um, which is not something I naturally feel. It's something I struggle with actually quite regularly. Um, I fell into more anorexia during this time, really during all of my mania, anorexia is like a common thread here, but I remember getting pretty, pretty thin and just like loving every second of it and loving the attention and, uh, it, it, really not, um, not somebody that I'm proud to say that I was you know, um, still using a lot of drugs at this time, ton of alcohol at this time. I remember showing up to my parents' house, having not slept in like 48 hours, you know, having blown lines that morning. I remember going there for my mom's birthday once and I hadn't slept in two days. And, um, and again, it's like somehow I think the ability to make this look all okay from the outside was there. I was still functioning. I was still paying my bills. I was still holding down a job. You know, I think my parents tend to come from the parenting realm of like, let her figure it out herself kind of thing. And so it, it is quite possible that they had severe worry about me without kind of telling me, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but yeah. This was a period of my life where I'm only recounting this as a memory. There was no awareness at this time that I was acting erratic um, or extreme or anything like that. Step number four, not step number four, key moment number four is age 29. The reason I added this one is the keywords for me here are high performing. And this one's really important to me because at age 29, I was 
in a longer term relationship with somebody, uh, not the healthiest relationship. He's an extreme alcoholic. He was using drugs. But, you know, all things considered, we were faithful to each other. We lived together. And, you know, despite the kind of extreme alcoholism that run rampant in our relationship on both sides, um, you know, we cared about each other, right? And he was, I, I can't remember if I've shared this or not, but he was diagnosed with a stage four cancer and which immediately turned our lives like completely upside down. And so that resulted in a full year of moving to Boston, being treated at Dana-Farber and Brigham's and Women's Hospital. And it was me really stepping up to the plate as the caregiver during this time. Um, at this time, when I was fully caregiving um, with his cancer, I was also achieving my MBA and achieving it with high marks, cum laude, magna cum laude. Um, during this time, I, as, as kind of an extension of my MBA and also in a period of mania, had come up with this idea that I wanted to start a cake pop business. And this was like before cake pops were like even a thing. And so I formed an LLC. That's actually how we paid for um, Tom's health insurance. And I'm literally running a business out of my home, making thousands of cake pops. And I bring this up because I think, you know, and I'll talk later about mania and bipolar being a superpower, but, you know, part of the reason why I think my bipolar hadn't been diagnosed yet, and, and really I was just kind of like somebody that struggled with de depression and anxiety, is because we really do get these periods of our lives where we really are incredible. Um, and in all the good ways, right? Like I managed to take care of my husband. I had to quit my job. He had to quit his job. I opened a business that was bringing in revenue to help support these healthcare costs. Like we, we had help from family. This, trust me, this was not solely funded by cake pops, but, and also all the while studying and finishing my MBA while he was physically in treatment in Boston. And interestingly enough, during this time, during treatment, I did slip more into a depression. I actually got really dangerously thin. And I remember uh, just feeling um, these feelings of, you know, trying to keep it all together, trying to keep all the balls in the air, but just really crumbling inside and not knowing really who to turn to or, or how to get help. And my parents were very supportive during that time. Um, a common thread in my life is kind of how they come in and out of my life based on where I am with my mental health. But uh, it was a really, 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 really dark time. Um, and my alcoholism also really, really took a new turn during that time. I remember sneaking bottles of vodka, like, because I would sleep on the hospital room floor. And I remember sneaking bottles of vodka into the hospital room and just like drinking myself to sleep. Um, but also kind of high performing at the same time. So I think that's really interesting as part of just the narrative of the story. Key moment number five is age 30. So we get through the cancer. I'm graduated as an MBA graduate, um, decide to put the cake pot business to rest. And uh, we decided to move, uh, a family member offered actually for us to live in his home in Annapolis, Maryland, um, to kind of give us a new start, um, help us out obviously financially um, because of the living arrangements. And so we said, great, let's do it. So we moved to Annapolis, Maryland. And um, he was really struggling with his mental health significantly coming out of the cancer and his depression was off the charts. Um, but his addiction was, was equally off the charts. He kind of picked off right where he left off, um, and kind of kicked it up quite a few notches. Um, so we're talking like passed out by three, four o'clock in the afternoon every day, not maintaining a job, th things of this nature. And so I um, was kind of still on my, you know, I guess by necessity, 
high functioning, right? So I did get myself a job before we moved down there. I was the uh, sales and marketing manager for a high-end steakhouse chain in Annapolis. Um, so it was a good job. It was a decent job. It was actually paying me more than I had, you know, been making previously. So it was nice to see some growth and development there. Um, I was actually pretty proud of myself for getting that job. And within about like maybe a month of moving to Annapolis, Maryland, there was a server at that restaurant, a waiter. He was in his early twenties and something kind of snapped with me uh, during that time. It was, it was a very instant overnight, no rational thinking, like immediate affair just started um, between the two of us. And it was this really intense, like, I love you from day one. I want to live the rest of my life with you. I want to have your babies. Let's run away together. Very over the top thinking. Um, not, not realistic at all. This is like a 20 something year old server in a restaurant who lived with like three guy roommates like this was but yet in my head it was like this false hope and ideation that like this is going to be my happily ever this person's going to take care of me um it was impulsive love there was a desire to escape my current situation so my current situation was not good there were definite problems there but there's other ways to respond to those problems right um, and so for me, it was like this very escapist kind of mentality. And within two weeks of this just whirlwind secret affair romance, I was pregnant and it was not a mistake. And so as quickly as this blind love kind of came into my life, and then discovering I was pregnant, I quickly fell out of it. So I obviously had to tell my partner what happened. So he was devastated. He left, he went back to Rhode Island. And I suppose in a moment of clarity, I remember when I, um, I've talked about this in a poem that I wrote in season one, um, but I remember it was December 21st uh, 2012 when I found out I was pregnant and I remember I was alone in this empty apartment I had gotten kicked out of the house that my uncle had offered you know me to live in my parents weren't talking to me and so everybody found out about the affair first and that's when Tom left and, and then I found out I was pregnant and so I remember I was completely alone by myself devastated find out I'm pregnant and had this moment of real truth within myself that like oh my god what have I done oh my god what have I done I was sleeping on the floor of a one-bedroom apartment by myself zero savings pregnant realizing that this 20-something is not going to save my life that there's no future with this person who's also an alcoholic <laughs> So I had to end that relationship and um, he left, he took off to Virginia or something somewhere. And I was, um, I was a single mom from the day I was pregnant. My parents weren't talking to me. It took them a couple months to start talking to me and start building that relationship. And <sighs> key moment number six is age 31, my pregnancy and my postpartum. And for the full nine months of pregnancy, I struggled a lot with depression and a lot of things that were going on because obviously I was in a really difficult situation, but I managed to actually get myself a new job. I knew I needed to. I knew in order to support this baby and myself, I was going to need a better income. And so that's when I actually broke into the hotel world, um, which I was in that industry for a decade after. Um, so I got a job making more money than I had ever been making before. Um, I, during my pregnancy started really making 
true friends and relationships for the first time in my life. Friendships is still to this day, not something that comes easily to me. Um, and during that time, I really, really made real genuine friendships. I really recreated the relationship with my mom, with my dad, with my sister. During my pregnancy, my sister was the first one in my whole life to ever ask me if I'd ever thought about bipolar. Um, I assumed she had been doing some research on it and thought maybe the symptoms matched me. And I didn't get angry. I don't remember getting angry. I think I accepted it um, as a possibility, but that was kind of it. I don't want to say I brushed it off. I don't, I don't think I did. I'd have to ask her. She'll probably remember that conversation. This is my older sister. She's a really solid head on her shoulders, but I remember very specifically, she, she kind of brought it to my attention. So that's the first time it really came up. So I'm, I'm now in my early thirties and have been struggling with mental health since I was 15. And this is the first time that even that conversation around bipolar has come up. Um, I had Annabelle, obviously, August 18th, 2013. And for the first eight months, I was uh, really happy as a mom, really happy with my routine. I had actually moved um, into a new apartment uh, with her, one that we could afford a little bit better. My mom helped us move. Um, I got her into daycare. I was going through the motions of life and it felt normal. And one of the things I remember about this stage is I could breathe. And as somebody that struggles with constant depression and constant mania, unmedicated, untreated, like you can never breathe. You can't breathe when you're manic because you're going too fast. And you can't breathe when you're depressed because you're stifled. And it's exhausting. Um. And for those first eight months of being a mom, everything just really slowed down for me. I could see, I could hear, and I could breathe. Key moment seven, same age, 31. And uh, the key contributors here are dependence, not independence happily ever after, and white picket fences. If you haven't heard this story, the full story is in episode 23 of season one of the Together Sober podcast and um, is the most extreme period of my life to date, the most dangerous period of my life to date. I traveled to a work conference April of... Um, I guess it would have been April of 2014 because Annabelle was about eight months old and my cycle continued. I met a man at this conference and that intoxicating love was instant, instant. I met him and literally that night we were in love. We were getting married. We were moving in together. He lived in Dallas. I lived on the East Coast in the Mid-Atlantic. And he was perfect. He also told me from day one that he was a convicted felon. His story was a little different from the truth, but he is a convicted felon because he abandoned his children in a car while he drunkenly sat at a strip club years ago. And it didn't matter to me. All I saw in my brain, in my manic brain, was white picket fences, happily ever after, somebody to take care of me, my Prince Charming. I didn't want to be alone for the rest of my life. I didn't want to be a single mom for the rest of my life. And this was my, this was my ticket. go back and listen to the episode, but I remember in that first night, I remember he had a flask. He had a flask that he was constantly taking out of his jacket and drinking. I didn't care. It didn't matter. He was going to save me. 
So the work conference was like three or four days. And then I flew back to Annapolis, Maryland. He flew back to Dallas. And within two weeks, I knew with absolute conviction, this was all of the answers to my future. I was completely intoxicated by love, lost my entire ability to see. I created ridiculous delusions of grandeur and drove me and Annabelle, now 10 months old, 1,400 miles across the country from Annapolis, Maryland to Dallas to begin my fairy tale with a convicted felon. Again, here's the danger of mania because that all sounds cray-cray, right? But all the while, I am so convincing because... I guess what? I got myself another really good job in Dallas, an even better one at a luxury hotel, um, making more money than I've ever made before. I end up starting that job and I'm a high performer, you know, achieving the monthly awards, managers, whatever, blah, 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 every month. And I convince the people in my life. And mind you, my parents live in Africa. So it's not like they're there to like check in on me. So I tell the story that I need to tell at the time. Everyone knew though, what I was doing was not okay. And so at this time, my parents once again phased out of my life. It was just like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Louise does these crazy things. And now the parents are gone, the sisters are gone. And but it, to me, it was like, I was so deluded. It didn't matter because in my eyes, I was doing everything right. I had that narcissism. I knew in my gut, in my heart, that I was doing everything perfectly for my life, for my daughter, everything. I was successful. I was about to get married again. And I was going to live happily ever after. And I ignored every sign. I look back now, I see all the signs. But I ignored it all. It, I didn't see it. Like, I was not... This is a brain disorder, right? I wasn't even in Dallas for two weeks after arriving for Mr. Wonderful. And within two weeks, he was arrested and in jail again for endangering his children. Again, in yet another drunk driving accident. Grandiose thinking, mania, denial, love is a toxic combination. I maintained my manic state for another six months while I still supported the love of my life, quote unquote, imprisoned behind bars. He wasn't in jail. He was in prison at this point. He'd already been to jail a few times and I was still in love. I was still convinced this was my happily ever after. I was taking care of his children. He had two kids. I was taking care of his children. And this was just a bump in the road. And in my heart of hearts, I knew that nothing was going to fuck up my fairy tale. Stubbornness is a really huge trait of mania. And I hope you can see the progression here, right? It starts off with like party drugs and, you know, frat parties. And, and now we're here. I took my daughter to a prison to visit him. We'll talk about shame and guilt another time. <laughs> Key moment eight, age 33. So he went to prison, I think, at age 31 or 32. Here, my key contributors are reality and loneliness. Mr. Wonderful was released from prison. We had been in touch, writing letters to each other on and off. And at some point during his prison sentence, I had some clarity, thank God, and wrote a Dear John, ended a relationship. But Mr. Wonderful was released from prison and he attempted to permeate my mind once again. He almost did. He did for about a week. I let him in. A bit reluctantly. Um, so this, I did not go into full mania. I kind of, against my better judgment, let him into my life. 
we spent some time together. I actually flew us to Florida for a vacation against my better judgment. And it was, I've never told anybody this. I've never even told my husband this. And um, in Florida, I could tell he was a, an extremely dangerous man, more than I had remembered from before. And so I knew that when we got back from Florida, I had to like just totally sever ties. Um, I found myself, I maintained a sense of reality and I refused to skip down that yellow broken road again, which, which I'm very, very, very grateful for. Um, as a result of permanently terminating that relationship, a very serious, um, a very serious series of painful and dangerous and traumatic events took place on the other side of that. I think I talk about it in, in episode 23, um, but he broke into my home. He, me and Annabelle were out on the streets because we didn't have a home and he was in there doing God knows what, what drugs, what transactions, I have no idea. Uh, he took all of our belongings and, um, um, finally I was able, it was a really long story, but I was finally able to get the police to break down the door of my own home, which took days to do. And, um, everything was gone and he was gone. And I, I reached my breaking point, uh, really in that moment, like life was, no longer worth living. I had been just like scrapping it all together for so long. And everything is always so hard for me. And I never really understood why. But life was just so fucking hard for me. It wasn't that hard for other people. Why was it that hard for me? I had to find a way out. Every day for months, I, after this, I lived in darkness. There was no way out. I couldn't see one. I couldn't find one. There was never going to be a happily ever after. I was going to be alone forever. I really started despising motherhood. Annabelle was three and a really tough three-year-old. And I just hated being a mom. And I regretted every moment that brought me there. I was traumatized by my home. I was traumatized by the events that had led me there. And um, one day on one of my many walks, I walked over an overpass bridge with the stroller. And I... Uh, Things just got a little bit too real for me in that moment, and I knew that I needed help. And so I didn't have really a relationship with my parents, but I called them and I I told them I needed help. And they flew over from Africa to watch Annabelle so that I could admit myself to the psychiatric ward at Texas Presbyterian Hospital. I don't remember a lot about my stay there with the exception of one key event. I remember one day after not leaving my room for days, um, seeing a doctor and she asked me all the questions I'd been asked before, been through this drill before. And, but then she did something that I just felt like nobody had ever done for me. And she listened to me and she heard me and she saw me and she told me she wanted me to try a new medication. It wasn't an SSRI or anti-anxiety. That's what I'd kind of always been on, on and off. Um, but it was a mood stabilizer, lithium. So I took the paper cup with the tiny pill and I made my way back to bed. 
and I woke up the next morning and I will never forget this moment for the rest of my life. I looked out the window and the fog had lifted and the sun was trying to peek behind the clouds and I could see and I could finally breathe. So I was 33 then. And I skipped to 39, age 39, key event number nine. And I skip here because it's sobriety. Because really from age 33 to 39, I danced in my addiction and still struggled with bouts of mania, but medicated, but how medicated because I'm <laughs> drinking and you know, but I was, I was with a care team. I had done some IOP. I was with a therapist on a regular basis, psychiatrist on a regular basis and had a social life. You know, things weren't great, but they were okay. I wasn't blowing up bombs everywhere. Um, but as you know, my addiction story, my drinking got worse and worse and worse. And, um, obviously through this time, I met my now husband, we moved to the suburbs of Dallas, we got married, we lived together, my drinking gets worse and worse and worse. And at age 39, I found my sobriety. And this is event number nine, because it changed everything for me. There was no way that I was ever going to have true management of my bipolar, my depression, my mania, my anxiety, my relationships, my daughter, my job, without finding sobriety. And um, I had it in the back of my mind for probably a, a solid year or two before I actually found it, that it was something I needed to do. And I battled with it. And finally found it May 16th, either 15th or 16th of 2021. So coming up on three years. And since then, it's just been kind of a roller coaster. Um, but it's gotten better every month after month after month. And finally, here we are coming full circle to my poem at the beginning of this episode, where key moment number 10, age 41, my new normal. I'm establishing baseline. I'm collecting data. I'm experiencing mania. I'm experiencing depression. I am trying to figure out what keeps me stable and understand what triggers me. I know what's in my control. And I know what's not in my control. I know how to take advantage of the good, the superpower, and I know how to release the bad and navigate through it. For the first time in my life, I feel in control. I can see, I can breathe, I can hear. And for the first time in my life, I'm really truly grateful for the events that have led me here and for the superpower that I now have. I've talked about this before, but, you know, bipolar medicated and bipolar unmedicated are two conversations. And I think we talk a lot about unmedicated bipolar, right? The girl who's getting pregnant, the girl who's traveling across the country on a whim, the girl who's, you know, in love with a convicted felon, like, that girl. But we don't talk a lot about what it actually means to be a functioning member of society as a medicated bipolar person. And y'all should all just be jealous. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. But I'm not really kidding. I mean, most human beings feel emotions maybe on a scale of like three to seven, right? You feel sad, you feel angry, you feel happy, you feel excited. 
unmedicated bipolar is feeling on a zero to an 11. Okay. The girl driving across the country was at an 11. Today, I feel a two to an eight. I can handle a two to an eight. And an eight is what allows me to have this podcast, to be a high performer at work, to come up with amazing creative ideas. And it's who, you know, prevents me from having really good friendships um, and maybe wanting to leave my house and maybe displaying a bit more anger than, than I'd like to. But it's manageable. And so what I'm doing this year and what I'm trying to do with the podcast this season is establish baseline. I want to collect data points on my past and my present so that I understand who I am and, and, and when I am that person. I, I now have almost three years of sobriety and I, I can almost say with certainty that every October I get depressed. I can almost say with certainty that every January I experience mania. And this understanding and this self-awareness is what allows us to now throw on the real superwoman cape and set out and really take over the world. I'm starting to feel like the luckiest girl in the world because of where I've been and what I've done and what I've seen. If we can harness our experiences the right way and work through the shame and guilt of some of our experiences, conversation for another time, we will get to where we can live every day in our passion, serving a purpose with a tremendous sense of fulfillment. And I feel that way right now. And I can thank mania and my bipolar for that. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of the stories this season. We're talking about some pretty cool experiences about, you know, going against your parents' expectations from, you know, president of an MIT graduating class to becoming a hip hop artist. We're talking about overcoming fears in ways that are going to just change your life and rock you to the core. We're talking about psychedelics and how they're changing the world and how they're changing us. And that's just a small taste. So thank you for listening to my story today. Thank you for tuning in this season. We're here to spread awareness and help as many as possible find effortless sobriety and mental peace. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.